0: Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, the managing editor of the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. For this extra inning of The Ballpark, I talked to Professor Suzanne Mettler, the John L. Senior Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell University, and Professor Robert Lieberman, the Krieger-Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at John Hopkins University, about their new book, Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. When asked by Elizabeth Willing Powell at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, what sort of new government had been created, Benjamin Franklin famously replied, a republic if you can keep it. In the more than 200 years which have followed that answer, America has seen threats to the democratic rights of the citizens of that republic rise and fall and rise again. In 2021, these threats appear to be still very much with us. On the 15th of February, 2021, I spoke with Professor Mettler and Professor Lieberman about how American democracy might now be under threat and what might need to be done to safeguard it. Before we start, it's worth mentioning that our conversation took place the day after the impeachment trial of former President Trump on the charge of incitement of insurrection, following the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. That trial ended with his acquittal by the United States Senate. Hello, Professor Mettler and Professor Lieberman. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just going to get straight into it. And I'm going to ask what is a democracy? What does a democracy look like?
1: A democracy, the way we think about it, is a system of government in which citizens are able to hold those in power accountable. And that happens mostly through regular and competitive elections. And it's also a system in which representatives engage in collective decision making. Another way of putting this. Uh, more concisely is the way the political scientist, Adam Jaworski has defined it, which is that democracy is a system in which parties lose elections. Um, Something very pertinent for thinking about democracy in the United States these days. So in this sense, democracy is really a universal category. Uh, And that way we can think about American democracy in much the same way as we think about democracy elsewhere. Um, All democracies have these features. But American democracy, which is the subject of our our book, Four Threats, has some different and maybe unique features, and particularly a set of institutional mechanisms for preventing a single person or a single group from gaining too much power and thus avoiding the kind of democratic accountability that is characteristic of all democracies. Um, So the United States has things like the separation of powers a system in which the president and Congress and the courts are all relatively independent of each other. Um, or a bicameral legislature, two houses of Congress, the House and the Senate, um, each of which has to act in order for the government to act. Or federalism, a system in which power is spread among a variety of governments at, the, at different levels, the national governments, state and local governments. So you can think about democracy in general um, but then there are specific features about American democracy that make it operate somewhat differently from other democratic systems.
0: Thank you very much. So my next question is, in your, your book, you talk about the four pillars of democracy as being under threat. Can you tell us a bit about you know, what, what these pillars are and how are they under threat in the U.S. and how have they been under threat?
2: Yeah. So if we we look at what are the features of democracy that help it to work that are are essential for its operations, uh, we narrowed those down to four groupings. So the first thing is, of course, free and fair elections, and that includes not only that elections are carried out so that you know everyone has a, um, a free choice to participate and their votes are counted, but also of course that the outcome of the election is respected and whoever wins it gets to govern and the others, um, those who lose step aside. The second major feature is the rule of law. So what we mean by this is that society is governed not by personal power of one or a few individuals, um, but rather by a set of rules that applies to everyone. And uh, no one is above the law. This also includes in the United States, the, uh, how politics occurs and the arrangements of the checks and balances, the um, balance of, of powers bef- between the branches of government. And then third is what's called the legitimacy of the opposition. So what that means is that people with different views need to be able to compete for political power. They need to be able to organize in political parties and to govern when they win elections and so on. And then finally, fourth is the um, integrity of rights meaning uh, civil liberties, civil rights, uh, voting rights, all of these rights that give citizens protection to give them equal standing and inclusion in society. Um, And of course these are, evolved over time. Not all of these things were present in the American founding by any stretch and particularly integrity of rights has been a more recent development. I mean, Rob and I think that it's only since the 1960s and 1970s that the United States could really be called a democracy. But what we've seen with these four pillars of democracy is that they have really been under threat and in danger of backsliding over these past four years. And so they give us very um, concrete indicators that we can observe in any period of history that we've looked at to see whether democracy is stable or perhaps expanding or whether it's uh, backsliding or in danger of doing so. And so as we've tracked these four pillars over the past four years, Early on, we were seeing threats to them and a lot of rhetoric about damage to them. But um, particularly over the past year, damage to them really um, picked up speed. And so, we, you know, we've really been keeping track of them with great concern. And this came to a head, of course, on, on January 6th.
0: Great. Um, well, my, my next question is, are the U.S.'s, uh, what some folks have called the democratic guardrails, enough to protect its democracy?
1: Well, it's—I mean—it's common for Americans to observe and to believe that our constitutional system protects democracy uh, by preventing excessive concentrations of power and by preserving these kinds, of these features of democracy, the pillars of democracy uh, that Suzanne just described. But what we've learned in writing for threats is that even with these constant institutions in place over more than two centuries, democracy hasn't been immune from from crisis. Um, Democracy has, in the United States, has developed haltingly and slowly. There have been a lot of periods of vulnerability and backsliding. So what we typically think of as the guardrails of democracy, the things that protect us from authoritarianism, haven't always protected democracy. Um, History shows, uh, as I said, that there have been repeated episodes of democratic crisis in moments when Americans genuinely and legitimately feared that the democratic progress was in danger of going backward. Uh, periods when these basic pillars have been under attack, not just in the last four years, but, but repeatedly at various points over American history. And the pattern that we discovered is that these moments of crisis in American history were periods when some combination of, of four threats, uh have been in place hence the title of the book and the four threats are very quickly polarization political polarization number one number two is conflict over membership in the political community who is to be considered what groups are to be considered full members with full rights um, and which groups are to be pushed to the margins uh, third is high and rising economic inequality and the fourth is growing executive power And the periods when democracy has been fragile or has been under threat or has actually gone backward have been moments when one or more or some combination of these threats have been present. Sometimes it's only one, as in the 1790s, the first decade after the foundation of the Republic, um, when two factions grew into the first uh, real political parties in, in American history. Um, and were really at each other's throats uh, until the election of 1800. Later in the 19th century, three threats combined, uh, polarization, uh, racial conflict, and and, uh, and economic inequality, to produce first the Civil War, um, and second, a period of uh, mass disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the 1890s, which were both really dangerous moments for democracy. Um, and in the 20th century added to all of this was the growth of executive power and the upshot of all of this is historically that that today for the first time we see all four threats in place at the same time which makes this we think a very dangerous very precarious moment for american democracy even with donald trump uh, out of office
0: so talking about going back to, to donald trump and and you know potential threats to democracy, some people have suggested that the capital insurrection on January 6th was an attempted coup d'etat. What do you think of that particular suggestion?
2: Yes, well, um, you know, to understand this, we've needed to look to our our, our colleagues who study countries around the world and who have a vocabulary for this kind of thing, because it was such a, a bizarre occurrence in the contemporary United States to have this occur. Um, in Latin America, they have a term for what happened, and it's not the coup d'etat because it was not um, an effort by military officers to take over, but rather it's what they call a self-coup or an auto-golpe. And so this has happened in various Latin American countries um, in the 1990s and in Peru under Fujimori and in Guatemala, Bolivia. But you know, very, very shocking for um, an American president to try to stay in power by denying the election results, using every power he could from election day in November onward to try to pressure state and local officials to to change the results in their states, the results of the election, and to uh, continually try to convince his supporters that he had in fact won and had there had it not been for fraud that he would have won. And of course, you know, there was no evidence of that. And all of the cases that his campaign brought forward to uh through the courts were thrown out. And yet it means that that today there are still a majority of um, Republicans who supported Trump and who believed that he was the rightful winner of the election. And so, you know, all of this really led to the instigating, um, the inciting of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th right up through that very day and all of the evidence that was presented by the house managers in the impeachment trial about how he was actively encouraging protesters to uh to fight to to take their country back. And uh so it's it's really shocking it's an effort to overturn an election, um to not accept losing in an election and to circumvent the rule of law in order to do that. So uh you know this represents real backsliding in the United States and it's shocking.
0: So earlier you talked about the the growth of the sort of the executive power of the presidency as being a threat to democracy. So how has the the presidency and the executive actually undermined democracy in in the 20th century and and more recently?
1: Well the story of American politics over the course of the twentieth and into the twenty first century is largely the story of what we call executive aggrandizement. The gradual but steady growth of the power of the executive branch, at the expense, particularly, of Congress. There's there's a core dilemma for presidents in the modern era. So on the one hand, they face increasing expectations um, placed on them by voters, by the public, um, to produce results, to fulfill their campaign promises, to address public problems. But at the same time, because of the separation of powers, they have to rely on others to achieve those results, Congress, the courts, uh, the bureaucracy. And often, um, because of the separation of powers, it's very difficult for them to achieve these results. They face opposition from members of the other party. Think about President Biden uh, today, in the very early stages of his presidency. You know The expectations that his supporters, the Democrats, have placed on him to deal with a series of crises, the pandemic, the economy, Uh, relations with other countries around the world, and so on. These demands are intense, and he's facing, you know, it looks like nothing but obstruction from Republicans in Congress, and it will be a big challenge for him to get things done under these circumstances. So what that means is that the temptation for presidents to find ways to act unilaterally is very great. And that's happened gradually over the course of the 20th century. Presidents have increasingly looked for ways to act without the participation of these other branches. The story goes back to the early 20th century. For us, it really starts in the 1930s and the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt, who took power in 1933 at a moment of really deep economic and political crisis. It was the the trough of the Great Depression. We looked across the Atlantic from the United States and saw regimes in, in Europe falling prey to authoritarianism and, and fascism and totalitarianism of various kinds. And a lot of people expected and even hoped that FDR would take would assume dictatorial power in the United States to address a crisis that didn't seem susceptible to the sort of normal kind of democratic policy making. In the end, he didn't do that. He didn't become a dictator, but he did leave the presidency much more powerful, Um, than when he took office through mostly not because he seized power in the sort of auto golpe like maneuver, um, but because Congress gave it to him. Um, The president gained greater policy, direct policy authority, the administrative state, the bureaucracy that's under the control of the executive branch grew. The White House staff began to grow so that the president around him in the White House has more capacity to direct the operations of the government. And then in 1940, Roosevelt, these things are all pretty well known, but in 1940 Roosevelt did something that's less well known. Um, This was uh, just as uh, Europe was um, at war but the United States was not yet in the war. But Roosevelt was consumed with worry about Um, subversion, Nazi and to some extent, communist subversion in the United States or the possibility for these things. Um, He signed a secret executive order that was actually authored by J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI, the internal security force in in the federal government that authorized the federal government to engage in essentially illegal wiretapping of uh, mostly foreign nationals, but also American citizens. Um, This was one of the beginning, early building blocks of what becomes a national security focused surveillance state with an incredible array of tools available for a president who wants to uh, use the federal government on his own authority to achieve a set of goals. Um, For Roosevelt, these were policy goals. But it created or began to create an opportunity for a less scrupulous president to use the power of the federal government, not just to pursue policy goals unilaterally, but to pursue his own personal and political goals. This is what we saw in what became the Watergate scandal in in the 1970s, um, when Nixon directed an operation in the White House to use the power of the federal government to harass his enemies and disrupt, or try to disrupt the election of 1972. And that became extremely apparent in the Trump administration. Um, The presidency now is even stronger than it was in Nixon's time. A run of recent presidents, including George W. Bush and and Barack Obama, built the power of the presidency in the face of, you know, incredible polarization and gridlock in Congress and in, in in the rest of the Washington establishment. Um, so that when Donald Trump assumed the presidency four years ago, he had an array of tools available to him that he was able to use not just to try and direct policy, or not even primarily, as far as we can tell, to direct policy, um, but to use the presidency both to enrich himself personally and to, you know, identify and punish uh, his perceived political enemies. And we've seen the fruits of that. In the in the two impeachment trials against the president, and and in this event on January sixth that we uh, that we witnessed, so uh, shockingly here in the United States.
0: Okay, so given instances of voter suppression in many U.S. states and the widespread denial of Biden's election victory amid GOP claims of voter fraud, it seems like the Republican Party isn't really interested in domestic ideals. Do you think this is the case? And if 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 you do why why is this the case
2: i would say this is really one of the most important developments that we're seeing right now is that one of the two major parties in the united states has decided it does not want to play by the rules of the game of democracy it is uh, becoming an anti-system party it is willing in its quest for power, for um, regaining power or maintaining power. It is willing to run roughshod over democracy, really ignore the rules of democracy um, entirely. And so why is this happening now, is is the question. You know, it, it's, frankly, it, it's reminiscent of the 1850s and leading up to the Civil War, and then finally when Lincoln was elected, the South seceding and going to war. Uh, It's reminiscent of the 1890s when in the South, um, you had a Democratic Party who saw itself losing and uh, in order to regain power did stage a coup d'etat in the city of Wilmington and happened more quietly all over the South uh, as it sought to regain power by uh, taking away the voting rights of African-Americans. What we're seeing now is the Republican Party, as, as polarization is, has been growing, and this has been happening for several decades really, at least you know since the 1960s at the grassroots level in the United States, there's been a sorting of um, ideology and the political parties so that conservatives are now Republicans and, Liberals are now Democrats. And to young people, that sounds very strange because they take it for granted that's how it would be. But actually, in the middle of the 20th century, there were liberals and conservatives in both parties, and there was a low level of polarization as a result. But now they've sorted themselves out increasingly. And there's been, uh, it's not just a grassroots development, it's also the case that uh, Republican Party leaders, leaders of both parties, but particularly Republicans, have worked very hard for the party to be um, competitive by distinguishing itself from the Democratic Party. Um, And so instead of trying to work together on policy solutions, which involves negotiation and compromise, there's been more of an effort to portray the parties as us versus them, as truly different. And increasingly, American society and politics feels like um, a war of us versus them, where you think of your fellow citizens, not as um, you know competitors in political parties, but rather as, as enemies. And so, so all of that has been emerging, but what's so dangerous now is that polarization is working together in an interplay with the other threats that Rob has described. So um, with a conflict over who belongs, particularly as it involves racism, and nativism. So uh, the American public has become more diverse over time and the Democratic party has become more diverse as well in uh, racial and uh, ethnic terms. And uh, by contrast, the composition of the Republican party has stayed very homogeneously white and Christians. It's a white Christian party. And what we know from political psychologists is that when you have a party that's very, homogenous like that, when they lose elections, they feel personally under attack. And it makes people really angry and feel like their way of life as they know it, their heritage is being lost. Um, And we've seen this again and again in American history um, when conflict over who belongs rages. And when you have one group that's really working for greater equality for all citizens, and the other party is working to preserve their way of life, as they call it, or their heritage, whatever. And so that's happening these days. It's entwined with polarization. And then thirdly, uh, rising economic inequality comes into play here. As some of the affluent and and um, businesses work together with the Republican Party, particularly extractive industries and and some other industries, in order to um, preserve the gains that they have. So you have all of these three things working together, and in each instance, you have one side of this conflict, which is housed in the Republican Party, that wants to win or gain power at all costs, never mind democracy.
0: Thanks. So. Given all these threats that you've outlined to, to US democracy and you align in your book, what now needs to be done to secure it? And what are some of the barriers to this happening?
1: This is, this is really a, a very hard question because these threats that we've described polarization, racial conflict, and the rest are, are um, we know from history, very, very hard to redirect. There are some things that a lot of people have called for that are you know, sort of structural reforms that are very, very difficult to achieve. There are non-majoritarian uh, features of the American Constitution, for example, um, the Electoral College, the uh, equal representation of states in the Senate that tend to uh, give disproportionate power to rural places, to less populated places and many people have called for changing these rules, um, the direct popular election of the president, uh, for example. Um, the problem with those proposals is not that they're wrong-headed, but that they're extremely difficult to achieve. Uh, for example, getting rid of the electoral college would require amending the constitution, which is very, very hard. So I think what needs to happen is to focus less on these gigantic structural reforms that are probably outside the realistic realm of possibility and to focus more on restoring and shoring up the pillars of democracy that we described earlier. Um, um, Voting rights, the rule of law, the idea of a legitimate opposition and the maintenance of free and fair elections. So I think, First of all, just the realization that we need to be aware and focused on these things when we're thinking about politics, I think, is important. You know, people tend to read the news or look at what's happening in the political world and think about it in partisan or personal terms. What does this mean for me or for my party or for my group? Um, and how can I get the most advantage out of any given situation? Um, and to some extent, that's natural. That's how politics works. That's how democracy works. But we also need to remember that that we need to value and preserve and focus on the very system of democracy itself. Um, so I think if there's one thing people should take away from this conversation, it's that we need to value democracy. But there are also things that we can do in policy terms, um, voting rights. There are a number of voting rights proposals in Congress right now. I think those deserve support. Um, as a way of reversing attempts at voter suppression and uh, to restore a sense that democracy is something that belongs to everyone, um, that everyone can and should participate in. Um, so there is some, some lower hanging fruit uh, there before we need to get to uh, constitutional reform.
0: Thanks, some, some really important things to think about there. All that remains for me to do is to thank our guests today, Professor Robert Lieberman and Professor Suzanne Mettler. Thank you so much for speaking to The Ballpark today.
2: Oh, we really enjoyed it. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Professor Suzanne Mettler is a John L. Senior Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell University. Professor Robert Lieberman is the Krieger-Eisenhower Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks so much to Professor Suzanne Mettler and Professor Robert Lieberman for joining me on this episode. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman as part of the Phelan Family Lecture Series program. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. You should also check out the special podcast miniseries from the LSE US Centre, The Politics of Race in American Film, hosted by Dr. Clive James Nwonka. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Email us any feedback at uscentre at lse.ac.uk or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore ballpark and tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the US Centre or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.